This is the Candidly Kim Podcast. Welcome to the Candidly Kim Podcast. We're uh, here with our awesome producer, Doran. I thought I was Fosmu now. I oh, wish Fos you were Fosmu. Okay, Fosmu, because, yeah, we were talking about that, that, uh, you know, not that we're Rush Limbaugh or Glenn Beck, but they have their Snurdly and Stew. Right. And so we have a Fosmu. Yep. And th- there's got to be a story behind that name. Do we want to know? Is it, like, is it appropriate for all audiences? It is. Yeah, it was <laughs> just something my brother called me when I was a kid. Oh, Fosolini okay. Bumper Stomper. Fazolini Bumper Stomper. How in the world did that get shortened to Fosmu? It was kind of hard to say Fazolini Bumper Stomper all the time. So, <laughs> Okay, so how, how did you get back at him for this? Oh, I haven't yet. <laughs> so should he just be looking over his shoulder? Probably. Is this a brother I know? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, also just saw your parents who are, I mean, um, amazing, just stalwart conservatives in the community have really, really driven um, for a generation or two conservative policy in, in our Utah uh, political sphere, served in, uh, your father served in the Senate? In the Senate? In the Senate. From 19, let's see, 1980 to 1992, I believe. Yeah. Wow. Okay. That was Bill Barton. And he's legendary. And, uh, you know, really, we can uh, credit him a lot with with getting good conservative roots and started uh, or started, I guess, in partnership with some others, the uh, UtahGrassroots.org. Correct. And they have a they have a tracker. They produce a tracker on our state legislators every year that uh, measures how conservative their voting record is. And I was always at the top. Are you surprised? (laughs) <laughs> Not really. <laughs> Always at the top. So, uh, yeah, for our audience, every year, look, uh, a couple months after, or about a month after the legislative session is over, you can go look and, and see who really did a good job and who not so much in our state legislature. But we uh, we have an amazing guest tonight. I mean, we're so excited. Um, I uh, This is one of my favorite people, just one of my go-tos on economic and tax policy. That is not my... Not my strength. I kind of know the basics and the fundamentals, and I probably know it, though, a lot better than a lot of people. But, you know, when I really need to get good, strong uh, counsel on economic policy, especially tax policy, uh, my go-to is Jonathan Williams. And he is the chief economist and executive vice president of the American Exchange uh, Legislative Exchange Council which is uh, a, a conservative-rooted organization for uh, state legislators. Very, yeah. um, it's a, it's a uh, bottom-up organization where legislators drive the policy. Yeah, and my dad uh, was really involved in that back in the day. Oh, was he? And tell us those years again. 1980 to 1992. 92. Well, let, let's uh, welcome Jonathan onto the show. And, welcome, and- Jonathan. Well, thank you. And uh, as I always like to say, greetings from the land of make-believe out here in Washington, <laughs> D.C. And it's great to be with you, my friend, uh, Kim. And uh, it's, uh, I wish I had better news, but there's very strange times out here in Washington for taxpayers right now, no doubt. Well, you know, I would have uh, agreed with your uh, calling it make-believe, but it's kind of a land of terror right now. I mean, like, that's a nightmare 
<laughs> um, place and the ideas that are coming out of the swamp that that you <laughs> Well, that you know, the in. great Ronald Reagan uh, would call it the island surrounded by reality. And uh, I tell you what, he wasn't even around to see this era of nearly $30 trillion now of national debt. So uh, it is uh, gets more that way every single year. You know, um, I, I remember when I was just kind of really uh, starting to play in, in, in political advocacy, policy advocacy, and and remembering just shuddering at 13,000 or 13 trillion and going, oh, my gosh, like that was this big scary moment um you know the, the debt ceiling wanted to be raised to 13 trillion and where are we now and i mean just not very long later and so what's um what's happening in dc and congress right now on uh, tax policy and economic policy well, I'll tell you, I, I you know, said there's a lot of bad things out there. There's no doubt there's still a lot of threats for, for hardworking taxpayers across the country with the, really the big government socialism agenda that is being pushed by the left wing of, uh, uh, in the Congress, in the House and the Senate. And uh, I guess the, the one silver lining of this uh, discussion, and, and right now, as you know, Kim, there's something like uh, five or five and a half trillion dollars of new spending and taxing proposals on the agenda. Uh, the silver lining, though, is uh, there's uh, something like, you know, a big, huge faction developing, you know, that is really causing a problem uh, for the, the left wing to get this across the finish line. And so right now, as we have Speaker Nancy Pelosi, that is uh, you know, no stranger to big government spending ideas and has been here for various uh, battles, of course, over the years in that perspective. Uh, she does not seem to have the votes in the House, and, and uh, Senator Chuck Schumer, the majority leader for New York, doesn't seem to have the votes in the Senate uh, to be able to advance uh, this uh, kind of five, five and a half trillion dollar spending package. So, you know, that is the silver lining right now is, I think, what the Americans see, the actual policies, regardless of the dollar amount being talked about right now, some of these big government policies, whether it's the Green New Deal uh, type agendas, whether it's the IRS snooping on your bank account. You've probably seen that in the headline news uh, recently. Uh, these are some really big and, and scary government ideas that are being proposed. And I think, you know, even these Democrats back in their districts are hearing from constituents saying enough is enough. You know, in, uh, it's such an uncomfortable place to be to have those margins in the Senate as close as they are um, that that the Senate de Democrats need every single vote. And so thank goodness, I mean, thank goodness for a Joe Manchin <laughs> that that, uh, that can do a little bit of math and uh, history and and say this, this really goes way, way too far. Um, but it would sure be nice to flip some seats next year <laughs> and not have to rely on Democrats uh, to peel away from their caucus to... Uh, to make sure we, we keep our economy um, safer than what's being proposed right now. Uh, what what can that, well, let's talk about how this compares to last year. And, and, and uh, maybe let's just back up to 2017. Uh, what did you see as, as an economic uh, policy analyst? What is the real uh, contrast between those those last couple of Trump years and a, and a Republican-led Congress? Well, you look at 2017, and I know you and I had this discussion uh, back then, 
And, you know, you, you rewind the clock, and the United States was the, the very highest uh, business tax uh, country in the industrialized world uh, pre the Tax Cuts Jobs Act debate that President Trump signed into law uh, late 2017. Uh, you had uh, the business tax rate at 35% federally, and, of course, you know, Utah and other states add their own state-level taxes to that. America was uncompetitive in a lot of senses, and we saw businesses uh, leaving this whole kind of discussion nationally that we had had, a very painful discussion around corporate inversions, where businesses were becoming international. They were uh, going from U.S.-based businesses to foreign-based businesses simply for uh, taking advantage of lower tax rates abroad. And so we had this real discussion around American competitiveness and what it made, really what it would take to make America competitive again when it came to tax policy. And thank God we were able to uh, get the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act uh, done. And we saw real tax relief for hardworking Americans across the board, uh, individual uh, and businesses. And America became much more competitive. And of course, we saw the results from that in terms of record uh, economic growth and job creation numbers. And then, uh, unfortunately, we uh, had hit uh, 2020 and the unforeseen pandemic and the government shut down. Really, the government mandated recession, unfortunately, during those uh, months during early 2020. And now fast forward to where we're at today. And when at least when it comes to tax policy, uh, you know, we're talking about really turning back the clock and reversing so much of the progress that we had made uh, during the 2017 period where America became a very competitive place to do business and we saw businesses bringing jobs and bringing manufacturing which would have been unthought of i mean kim you know i'm a michigan native and we actually i remember seeing a, a story on the drudge report saying that there was a ford facility i think in mexico that was actually closing down and leaving mexico and moving back to michigan and bringing wow. manufacturing jobs <laughs> and get great jobs and you would have said you're crazy if you would have, like even a decade ago, you said that would have been happening. But because of Michigan turning around and becoming more competitive and free market with right to work and, and lower taxes, and of course then with our federal tax cuts, that actually uh, that kind of thing was happening. And now the discussion today, unfortunately, as I mentioned, is to turn back the clock on that progress and to really move America into a much higher tax uh, place. And so whether that is a, uh, a move in five or 10 percentage points higher, uh, that unfortunately puts a lot of American jobs at risk. And so uh, this is a much different environment. It's, uh, it's a very defensive environment, I think, for taxpayers right now. And as you mentioned earlier, I mean, in, in a way, this is Joe Manchin's Senate. And it's, uh, to some degree, Kristen Sinema as well from Arizona. But thank goodness for both of them as Democrats that are standing up to some of these big government progressive ideas right now and are saying, let's have a strategic pause. How many trillions of dollars have we spent uh, collectively as a government and federal and state governments over the last 18 months during the pandemic? No doubt some of it was needed for health care reasons. But, you know, any time that there's a crisis, as uh, Rahm Emanuel or Saul Alinsky would say, never let a good crisis go to waste, unfortunately. And they've used it to grow government in some cases permanently. And so that's something I think we all need to be very vigilant to guard against the, the, the really the permanent expansion of government authority and government spending. So that's something, of course, we're watching very closely in D.C. And like I said, uh, thank goodness for some really, uh, I think, uh, open-minded Democrats right now that are saying enough is enough to some of the most radical ideas. Right. And and thank goodness for that. And some of the specific things that uh, Joe Manchin, Senator Manchin is talking about is um, a work requirement. 
And that's usually not um, what you hear from Democrats for, for different welfare programs and things like that. <laughs> no, but it's, uh, it's common sense, right? I mean, that's what the, the hardworking folks back in West Virginia, uh, that's what they would like to see. And so Senator Manchin is, I think, absolutely representing his constituents in that case. And, and I think that's something that is a common sense idea. When you look at polling across the country, that's something that in these moderate uh, districts all across the country, that's what Americans would like to do. They don't want to see you know, what we've seen over the last uh, 12 or 18 months, which is we tax people more who work and we pay people not to work. And then we wonder why we have a huge labor uh, problem where we can't ha- find workers to go back into the workforce. So the thing that you know has bothered me from the start here, Kim, is you know it's really it's not the big businesses that worry me as much as it's the mom and pops and the NFIB members and those entrepreneurs that maybe have had a, a restaurant or a small business in their family for you know decades. And uh, they were, first of all, they were shut down by government order. Uh, secondly, in a lot of states, uh, they weren't as wise as Utah, but in a lot of the states, they allowed the tort uh, lawyers to go and the, and the trial lawyers to come and sue them potentially for these COVID-related lawsuits where there's really a new cottage industry that came up to go after small businesses. And then one more thing that hit them, of course, is once they were allowed to reopen is then they couldn't find the workforce because we saw in so many cases people were making more money to stay at home and and not work rather than go out and get back into their livelihoods. And so it's really a triple whammy of what's happened because of, you know, bad incentives and and just bad, uh, not very well thought out government policies. I have to apologize for I had a little bit (coughs) of a cough attack there. Um, oh, and not worries. COVID, but um, yeah, so one of the things I was looking at, um, looking into the, the child tax credit today, is uh, Senator Lee <clears throat> and Senator um, Rubio have proposed an amendment to make sure that any any changes in that child tax, tax credit don't have that same result that we saw in this past year of incentivizing people not to work. Or, or even on the social side, incentivizing people not to marry. And, uh, and, and because that's what history kind of tells us is some of these programs, they become, uh, they become entrenched. They don't, they don't go away even if they don't work. And uh, even though that tax credit might be better, might be higher for families, uh, might it have the result of, of competing with work. And, and so there, there has to be sort of that that balancing act there that that it gives the you know it, it um the uh, the uh, the maxim that says we you know if you if okay i'm gonna get this totally totally wrong i should have put it in my notes the ronald reagan quote you 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 sub, sub you subsidize what you want and you tax what you don't want that was a really bad paraphrase of that wonderful quote but so Republicans have been supportive of that child tax credit because we we want to support having families and um, and bringing on you know the the next generation that does uh, you know keep an economy working um, it, as well as just just a pure human value of of families and and raising children and um, but we can go too far with that where we we then incentivize the wrong thing so um, happy to see those two good. Uh, senators out there proposing that. I don't That's know. Right. 
Well, and you know I'm a huge fan of Senator Mike Lee. Uh, we've talked about this many times. I think he's one of the true American heroes standing up on behalf of hardworking taxpayers here in Washington. If we could only clone another 60 <laughs> or 70 of him uh, to represent us all in the United States Senate, we'd be a much, much better place uh, right now from a policy perspective. Uh, and that one other point I think it's important to make, which is, you know, for all of the left-wing anger against the the Trump tax cuts, that tax cuts and jobs act that I was talking about a minute ago, that uh, the left said, you know, Bernie Sanders and the like would say, you know, this is all for millionaires and billionaires, right? Uh, you know, let's not forget, this was a, ma- a big expansion of the child care tax credit uh, during the Trump tax cuts, as well as the standard deduction for families who don't itemize. And so a huge percentage of the tax cuts uh, across the board went for middle to low income Americans. And so I thought it was one of the biggest uh, misconceptions of that whole debate. And of course, the liberal media was complicit, if not driving this misconception, that it was somehow just for the rich. Uh, But it was actually a tax cut for all Americans, especially uh, in a lot of cases, those with kids and those with families. And if somebody with a couple of young kids at home, uh, that extra little bit has come in handy. I can tell you that. You know, absolutely. And as we've seen, uh, inflation also really hit hard lately and and just the cost of of everything um yeah good thing that we do have that in there but you know the the uh democrats in congress would like to reduce that they would like to restrict it um to the lowest income uh brackets and and that doesn't really serve that original purpose of of spurring inspiring motivating uh families and and bringing children and and we're watching growth rates and things like that, uh, and birth rates and move-in rates, all kinds of things like that in Utah. Um, Let's um, maybe pivot to Utah. Uh, Utah now, is it 13 years? It's 13 years? 14. 14. It's 14. 14 years. Doran, I don't know if you know this, but uh, Utah has placed number one in uh, rich rich states, poor states. Um, for our economic policy, and and we're just one of the the best states when it comes to uh, the ability to prosper and start a business and and move from uh, from one income class up the ladder. And we just have uh, some of the best policies. We uh, and Jonathan knows though, and and Jonathan reminds us as well that we have to stay always vigilant. <laughs> and there are always forces to uh, to try to get us to reform tax policies, change tax policies in different ways. But what we do really well. So what what is it that we're doing differently from other states? Well, you know, that's a great question. I get it asked uh, almost every time when I'm out on the road, and I've been in all 50 states now, as you know, over the last uh, 15 years of putting together this book and probably doing 1,000 or 1,500 events over that time frame. And, you know, there's some great policy lessons to be learned from Utah, and it's uh, it's a place that is, uh, you know, first of all, as you know well, Kim, it doesn't get a lot of things tremendously wrong, uh, and that's important, and that you look at, you know, in rich states, poor states, we measure a state based on 15 factors for economic competitiveness, such as taxes and labor policy and regulation. And uh, Utah, I don't believe, ranks uh, in the bottom half of any of the 15 factors. Uh, So that's an important point. And then, you know, some of the the, uh, gains that have been made uh, even a decade plus ago when Utah went to a single rate flat tax 
uh, and now has been to reduce that rate below 5%, which is important. I think there's some additional room to be uh, improved on there as other states have uh, really cut taxes on income, especially small business income taxes and income taxes on working men and women across the country. That's one of the most important factors, I think, for being a competitive state. So Utah uh, has some room, I think, to still improve and get that rate uh, further down. Uh, but, you know, you look at the property tax system, something that we've talked about many times, the truth in taxation law that's been on the books in Utah since the 1980s, which is now one of our model uh, pieces of legislation at ALEC, uh, the truth in taxation policy, now adopted by Kansas this year, adopted by Nebraska this year. We're taking this across the country as something that really uh, has a rational uh, approach to stopping the the massive assessments that are happening across the country as property values rise and inflation is, is high, of course, this year, uh, something that I think Utah has really been ahead of the curve on. Uh, also, pension reform, our, our good mutual friends, uh, Dan Lindquist and, and John Dougal, Frugal Dougal, uh, have done uh, yeoman's work, uh, you know, a decade plus ago, going in and starting to transition the pension system into more of the 401k uh, style that so many from the private sector are used to, and Utah was a real leader in that regard. And, and then even the last thing I'll leave you with, and uh, this is something that not many states do well, uh, but the Financial Ready Utah, and I know that you've t- worked on this a lot, we've talked about it, and Utah has now come up with a plan, a contingency plan to say, when these federal funds finally dry up towards the states in an era of uh, nearly $30 trillion of national debt, what do we do at the state level to ensure that we continue to fulfill the needs that are out there or give uh, you know some of these functions to the private sector? Uh, and coming together with that commission that Ken Ivory and, and others from the private sector then came together, and uh, that's one of the reasons why, uh, for instance, the bond rating agencies have kept Utah as a AAA, AAA. bond rating state because of that contingency planning. So I think it's a lot of forethought. It's a lot of good policy, and it's uh, you know it's a lot of things that uh, don't catch the headline news, unfortunately, in many cases, but are so important for the growth of states. And and by the way, I'll leave you with this on our ranking, Kim. It's not just us, of course. It's so many others that have now recognized Utah uh, for being one of the very most competitive states in the country. We think we we were ahead of the curve there. We started 14 years ago saying you were number one, and you look at the census numbers, for instance, that just came through as they're thinking about redistricting right now as Utah is the fastest-growing state in America at nearly 20% population growth over the last 10 years. And I would say that is not a coincidence. That is the result of good policy and good free market economics that are leading people to vote with their feet and leave high-tax states and go to states like Utah that have a good competitive business environment. Absolutely. And uh, and also to mention kind of one of the basics that we're a right-to-work state, and um, that's, that's also very, very helpful. Um, so what, uh, what can we be doing right now as citizens? Uh, if we're writing our letters to Mike Lee, Senator Lee, uh, Senator Romney, uh, our Congress people, what are we asking for? Well, this is a great question. I just uh, gave a talk to a group that... Uh, Justice Clarence Thomas's wife, uh, Jenny Thomas, asked me to speak to just yesterday, and it was a group of uh, folks coming into Washington and working with state lawmakers and working with federal lawmakers and coming up with best practices, how to engage with them from a free market policy perspective. And I think one of the biggest pieces of advice I have, 
that I've had for a long time after working with so many elected officials. And I know this will put a smile on your face because of, of the constituent interactions I'm sure that you and so many others have is, you know, be intentional at reaching out, not just at the federal level, but at the state level, not just when you need something, but when it's, uh, you know, somebody needs to hear uh, something and, and not just a negative item. This is, I think, the most important point is so many of us, and I fall into this trap just as much as anybody else, only weigh in when we have something constructive criticism or something negative to say. Uh, I think it's just as important to reach out to people like Mike Lee and, and others that are trying to fight the good fight and saying thank you because we know how hard it is to fight in the swamp in Washington. And let's not forget there's swamps in, in all 50 state counties. Oh, yeah, we have ours here. <laughs> Maybe less in Utah than other states. But I'll tell you what, uh, the people, the men and women out there that are fighting the good fight, that are putting in the long hours, that are not making the big paychecks. I mean, you know this well. You make a big sacrifice for public service working in a state legislature. You know, people need to hear the positive, that you're praying for people, that you've got their back, that you know they're going through it, and asking how they can help. That's just a huge, huge plus, and it's something that our folks forget about a lot. Well, that's that's great. That's a great message to leave with us. And, uh, you know, you mentioned our, our Financial Ready Utah plan, and, in the contingency that the federal money dries up, um, you know, I don't see anybody putting any lids on anything. <laughs> Nobody's holding the line on that debt. Nobody's holding the line on the spending. But we just have to. We have to keep fighting that fight. And, you know, as states, we balance the budget. And uh, constitutionally, I think uh, probably all the states are required to do that. Um, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what we're going to do about this federal government, but uh, we've got to be strong as states. And I, I think that's been even uh, more evident this last year than, than ever before. Um, our state legislatures have to be strong. Our states have to be strong. Um, and, and some of the things, and not just economic policy, but you know what we've seen the federal government try to impose on our, our people, um, that the, the states may need to and it assume a stronger role as they always should have had anyway. But um, thank here, you here. so much. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> That's an important point. That is the that is the essential point right now that Washington needs to take a page from the states. The states are the laboratories of democracy and innovation. We know it works. We know that DC needs to learn from Texas and Florida and Utah and, and Utah. Tennessee and Arizona, <laughs> the states that are actually getting it right. And that's the idea of the founders, right? It was to have these competitive systems of government and let the best ideas bubble up. And uh, here, here, let's hope that Washington <laughs> is paying attention to what's happening at the state level. Absolutely. And so thank you again also for ALEC and all that it does to, uh, to help us at the state level push these initiatives forward, hold the line on... Um, on this this federal government but but absolutely what you do to to help us on tax and economic policy was just invaluable so and i miss working with you but i still follow alex so people can go to alec.org and uh and, and read some some good analyses uh read more about our state and uh you can also download um rich states poor states and uh and if you want one i can find you some copies if you want a hard copy and uh and look at how we compare and just uh, an incredible resource I, I just have to also put one more plug um 
ALEC is not just about, we hear a lot about rich states, poor states, but ALEC also has a couple of other centers uh, with policy emphasis, including uh, Center to Protect Free Speech that I was very involved in. So again, grateful for that policy work and support there. Again, um, bottom up, driven by local elected legislators um, and, and coalescing behind good, solid policy. Um, and anything else you want to mention about Alec before we let you go? Well, no, just thank you, uh, Representative, and always good to catch up with you, my friend, and keep up the good work out there. Utah is a state that works. We need to, uh, we need to replicate your successes. Of course, uh, so many other states in, in, this, uh, in the country and, of course, there's a few things that Utah can improve on. We'll be working with our, our good friends like our ALEC National Chairman, Stuart Adams, uh, in the Senate right now. President and, Adams, And yes. our ALEC delegations uh, has re really uh, been a great group to work with over the years. And like you said, you know, we're a great nonpartisan uh, free market resource, ALEC.org, richstatespoorstates.org. Uh, we're here to help uh, in any way that we can move the ball forward with good public policy. Well, thank you so much, and thanks for being with us again. Thanks for having me. Take care. Have a good night. Thank you for joining us on Candidly, Kim. Uh, what did you think about some of those things, Dorn? I mean, that's some amazing um, analyses and uh, sometimes frightening. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's amazing <laughs> that, that uh, Utah has done so well, uh, kind of in spite of some of the... Um, <laughs> some of the people involved at the state level. But uh, I think that just goes to show the strength of the people of Utah, because uh, the people of Utah, where their hearts are, where, where uh, the, the kind of work that we do and uh, our charitable uh, nature. Absolutely. And, you know, um, that makes me think that last week we had a special election to uh, the legislature, uh, Representative Craig Hall, uh, announced his resignation to uh, assume a judicial appointment and a lady named Judy Weeks Rohner was elected to succeed him. Do you know what she's famous for? No, what is she famous what for? She's famous, in fact, you're, that's where I saw your parents, they were there. Uh, she was one of the primary leaders of the uh, tax reform referendum. Oh, wow. So she went to town with a group of folks and went all over the state gathering signatures to push back on uh, the legislature's uh, tax reform. I, that was just like a year and a half ago. Yeah, yeah, about two years ago it was passed, and, you know, I don't even like to use the word reform. It was a tax mangle. I don't know what, what we call it. But, you know, that was a really strong voice of the people, also, you know, pretty across the board, nonpartisan uh, people everywhere. It, it raised the grocery tax, right. lowered some taxes, raised some taxes, uh, you, you know, the more complicated our our tax policies and systems get, the the more um, they tend to become inequitable, unfair, unpredictable, unreliable. So we've had a pretty like like uh, Jonathan said. You know, we have a, f a pretty flat uh, below five percent income tax, and um, and our 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 other tax policies pretty pretty decent but then we went all over the place that year yeah some things got raises some i don't think many got reduced a few got reduced some got raised so judy weeks runner went out and organized people 
and they passed a referendum. The legislature quickly, uh, quickly got the uh, picture, got the message, got the message, and now she's in the legislature. So, so hopefully she'll take uh, a lot of those same things. That's that's a that's a message to people out there who maybe think citizen activism doesn't pay off. Oh, absolutely. Now nobody has to do the kind of hours Judy does, but. I don't know how many hours Judy sat at a Harmon's grocery store table and knocked doors, but, uh, but you know, lots of people did little work, you know, and uh, so you can make a very big difference as a citizen, and, and you didn't have to just lay down for whatever the legislature just handed you in a new tax tax policy, tax reform. But um, anyway, so uh, we have some other guests coming up, some really exciting guests. Uh, we've got Cleta Mitchell. Is coming on. We're Great. getting her scheduled, and she is going to be awesome. You'll have to Google her, okay? Um, because she's just like enormously amazing. And we're having a hard time pinning down Representative Steve Christiansen. Yeah, yeah. So Steve Christiansen. Now we have a. Uh, let me just do a quick plug. We have a big weekend event coming, and so he's very active with that, and and very busy with that. But we think we're going to be able to do some uh, some live spots uh, with our Great. podcast this weekend at at the utah we we connect we connect <laughs> it's kind of like an auditory play on we connect but it's we can, can act, act. Yeah. Right. we can act i don't know we can act we connect um and because and that kind of comes from a world of of uh being uh deterred in our ability to connect and being uh, canceled and yeah. separated and silenced and sequestered and quarantined and all this. So now we're going to have a big conference this weekend. And this conference is being put on by, it's being organized by people who are just citizen just activists. people. Yeah, just citizens. And, uh, you, you know, there's no big organizations behind it, no, you know, big special interest money or anything. Uh, there are there are going to be a lot of organizations that uh, do good, good policy advocacy, big community work on behalf of the people and we, the people that will be there. But um, so uh, we're going to have some guests on uh, tomorrow, I think, um, cool. or, or to talk about um you know that conference a little bit more. Uh, look to our website or to our our Podbean uh, site. Leave your comments. Give us a like and a follow. Uh, we're also on social media, all the regular places: yeah, Facebook, Rumble, Getter. YouTube. Are we on Getter? I'm I'm on Getter personally. On Getter? And I do kind of list the podcast, but uh, just building there. So so find us there. I'm pretty active in Twitter. Yeah, we should talk about Truth Social. So I, I'm on Twitter a lot now, more than okay. ever. And for whatever reason, as fast as Twitter's canceling people, um, conservatives are organizing and connecting nice. there. So uh, so find us on Twitter there. But uh, yeah, give us a like and a follow. Okay. And we'll see you next time.